Speak the charm of me. There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. When wizards will lose This is the Arnamancy Podcast. The world is weirder than we know. Join your host, Reverend Eric, in his diverse array of amazing guests in an exploration of tarot, magic, the occult, and the history of Western esotericism. The Arnamancy Podcast exists thanks to the support of generous listeners like you. Please consider supporting this podcast for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash arnamancy. In this episode, I am joined by Heather D. Freeman, the creator of the Familiar Shapes podcast and short film. We are going to talk about bots, familiars, virtual reality, folk magic, Wicca, and doing rituals over Zoom. But first, an announcement. As you have probably noticed, it is October, which means that Halloween is coming up. This year, my Halloween live stream will feature occultist and mixologist Kevin Carlo of Cryptic Cocktails. We will be sharing some Halloween cocktails and mocktails, then talking about the occult and esoteric significance of their ingredients. We will be going live on Friday, October 29th at 6 p.m. Pacific time. You can find a link to the live stream in the show notes. And of course, there will be an announcement in the Arnamancy newsletter. And now, on with the podcast episode. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, my guest is Heather D. Freeman. She is a professor of art and digital media at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, and the creator of the Familiar Shapes podcast and short film. She is also an occultist, an initiate of Gardnerian Wicca, and author of the forthcoming zine by Theurgical Studies Press, The Piedmont Path, a witchcraft oracle of contemporary North Carolina. Welcome to the podcast, Heather. Or Thanks. Professor Freeman. <laughs> oh my gosh. Please please call me Heather. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> That's easier. Thanks so much for having me on, Eric. I really appreciate it. Yeah. It, you know, it's, it, it's, I'm really excited about this. Um, as I was saying before we started, your uh, podcast, Familiar Shapes, um, is amazing. And I've listened to every episode and I hope that uh, everybody here, listen. Everybody who's listening to us right now should probably stop listening to us and go <laughs> listen to every episode, and then come back to this. Oh, well, thanks so much. I, <laughs> I mean, seriously, that, that your your email out to me that you listened to it at all, like really, literally made my day. So it makes me really happy when I, I find out. Can you, fellow weird people listen to yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Um, I mean, it's, it's uh, well, actually, why don't you tell us a little bit about what the podcast is about? Sure. Um, should I give you the the dirty history of how it started off? And then... Oh, yeah, as dirty as possible. <laughs> okay, filthy dirty. I really just wanted to meet Ronald Hutton and kind of give him a hug. That's actually, that was the impetus <laughs> for the whole project. Um, I, I have checked that off my bucket list. I'm very pleased to say. Um, so yeah, no, I was, it was 2016 and I was, um, reading about, uh, the early modern witch trials and records about uh, descriptions of familiars and trying to parse out, you know, where did that originate from? Where did that concept come from? Um, you know, it's, it's found in, in certain parts of the UK and in Basque country, but it really doesn't exist in continental witchcraft trial records. Um, so I was, I was, I was fascinated by the historians who were sort of trying to unpack what was happening with the witches familiar. And at the same time I was reading, uh, because I'm a nerd uh, and teach digital media, I was reading about social bots on uh, social media networks and how they related to disinformation. So 2016, we had the referendum in the UK, we had the US elections, and there was a lot of discourse happening about the role of social media and um, not only spreading this information, but also shaping it, which are slightly two different things. And I thought that was really interesting. And I started to think about the bot as being basically kind of like the modern equivalent of the familiar. You know, it's, it's uncanny. It's manipulated by hidden forces. It creeps into your house through the cracks in your, 
your well your systems so Does i started it feed off of like hidden nipples that i don't know it totally feeds <laughs> off of you know if you have a really old mac it'll go into your chooser and then totally, yeah <laughs> absolutely so you know i mean i was making i was poetically spinning them off of each other but i mm-hmm. thought you know this could be there could be something here. So I started talking to historians and technologists and I I started building what would have been my first feature length film. It was fantastic. I got to interview both technologists and historians who I've been reading and kind of following. So I got to interview Owen Davies and Marion Gibson, Alexander Cummins, Dr. Cummins, um, uh, Daniel Harms. So I like all the people I was sort of fangirling at anyway, I got to interview them. And and this is true for the technologist side too. So Samuel Woolley, I don't know how many listeners would know them, but um, just fantastic journalists and researchers looking at technology. And I spent the next couple of years building this rough edit. Um, I was uh, paying uh, students to help me with the animations. I'm primarily an animator. You know, they were developing these animations and I was like, you're going to have a film in your resume at the end of this. Well, then COVID hit. (laughs) Oh yeah, I heard about that. Yeah, it was a thing. I don't know, you know, who knows? Froze all my funding for my film. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, March, 2020. The film needed to be out and done end of 2020. And um, I was already way behind on schedule. So I, I kind of, in April, I, I kind of had um, some long phone calls with friends, mostly me crying <laughs> and being like, I've spent five years on this film and I think it might be dead. But like, I have all this great interview footage and the technology stuff is getting old. So it's got to get out like this year. Should I just turn it into a podcast? Because that's all I'm doing. I'm like lying around sulking at home, trying to teach online and listening to podcasts. So they're like, yeah, you might as well. So um, I've always loved sound design. I, I did a lot of sound design as a graduate student before I got sucked into the world of animation. And I went back to an earlier five hour edit of the film and just started parsing things apart and reorganizing stuff and constructing a narrative. So it, it ended up, it, it is the film. The film looks at, at the early modern witch trials and social media today. And it kind of compares and contrasts how different information technologies spread and shape disinformation. So in the early modern period, the movable type press mm-hmm. really facilitated the spread of ideas about the witch and the ideas about the witch is familiar. And today we see all kinds of interesting ideas shaped and spread on social media. So that podcast ended up also kind of becoming a little bit of a diary of my family sort of existing in this um, pandemic and, and me sort of rehashing this information about the history of magical practice in early modern England, and then also looking at that as an analog to uh, how so many of us were existing on social media. So yeah, that's the long history of it. That's interesting. I, I was just thinking of uh, maybe another par- parallel. So like, you know, when movable type happened, um, it was probably what, like, less than a hundred years before you had, what was it? The Malleus Maleficarum. Yep. Yeah. yeah the witch hammer. Yeah. yeah. Which is, uh, which is definitely like sort of one of those misinformation books. Like there's so yes. much crazy weird stuff in there. And yeah. some of it, I know, um, modern practitioners kind of enjoy, you know, sort of oh, yeah. look at it almost grimoire like, but oh, now yeah. there's sort of this whole new thing. Like ever since TikTok started to be really popular, there's like this, I don't know TikTok very well, so I'm going to talk about it and sound like I do. <laughs> oh, I don't know it well either, so I can just like agree with you. Oh, perfect. Wholeheartedly. It, yeah. It'll be like uh, Republican radio then. <laughs> Wait, we'll, we'll be mutual confirmation bias. It'll oh, be the best. Perfect. Um, yeah. No, I mean, I guess like as an outsider watching it, I'm seeing like uh, they're calling it like witch talk, but it's basically like yeah. brand new, very young occultists and practitioners who are just, it seems like just making stuff up like crazy and putting out all these ideas that that you know everybody else has to spend time kind of um debunking and saying like no this isn't true no this isn't true which is fascinating to see because it's not bots it's like no no and that's but it is kind of related because it's because those things get popular because of automated algorithms Right. Well, and so here's the fascinating thing. This is why my my technology interviews were getting long in the tooth and I had to like get that information out before it was totally irrelevant. So in 2016, 
the big concern was bots because this is before Twitter started purging them, before uh, social media companies were really like, oh gosh, you know, it, it doesn't take very many bots to mess with an, with the algorithm, right? And But today, you really don't need bots. All you need to do is couch your information carefully and people will very effectively spread that you know, weird information all on their own. So if it triggers us in some way, if it's hilarious in some way, if it, it sort of gets at our emotional, you know, hotspots, we're more likely to reshare it and promote it or like it. And that's what the algorithms are looking for. They're not looking for content. They're just looking for how many things are getting liked. So the witch talk thing. Okay. So I got, I got big thoughts on that one. So the witch talk thing, one of the things that was fascinating about that is I think it was like over the summer, maybe it was last spring. I can't remember. It was a while ago. There was this whole thing about young, young witches. Okay. So there's there's some gendered ageism things happening there too, right? Oh, so yeah. uh, young young female witches were going to go like hex the moon or hex the fae, right? Oh, yeah. And so <laughs> and, and like everybody was freaked, not everybody, but a lot of people were like freaking out about this, like oh they're so naive and ignorant. What are they doing? Blah blah blah. And so fortunately, there were some other people who like went back and tried to source where did that come from. Uh, it was basically somebody trolling witch talk. So it wasn't actually from. Like it didn't exist, right? Mm-hmm. And so that idea, it was the false idea that got promoted, which is oh, like incredibly magical to me. I Damaging saw, to witches, um, but I saw something recently like that on Reddit, where there was a, uh, as from what I can tell, it's a it's a satirical subreddit setup called like Hex the Taliban or something, <laughs> or, or Witches Against the Taliban, where there are all these like, I mean, they were joke posts. So it was really hard to tell what was trolling and what was trying to like ride along and get more traffic for itself. But there were these things right. like, you know, how to hex Allah and all this kind of stuff. It's like, uh, oh, I mean, interesting. It, yeah. yeah. And it was definitely, you know, I mean, if you read the original posts, you could tell that it was just people joking around. Right. But right. I'm not sure that everybody took it as a joke. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's there have been... Like, at least I can count on my one hand the number of times I've seen friends of mine who are really smart, really well-read people. Um, they're thoughtful. They're, you know, spend time thinking about big things. Um, reposting articles, headlines from The Onion and mm-hmm. being outraged, right? <laughs> and it's like, and it's it's simply because, like, we go through social media so quickly that we don't take the time to slow down and fact check the things that are that we're sort of responding to in a really vigorous way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, in the podcast, that was my one like preachy kind of moment. I had several preachy moments. Let's be let's be honest. But my major preachy moment was like, slow the heck down. Can I? Can we cuss on here? I don't know. Uh, yeah, but you I'll can't, say no. You can't say heck. Oh, okay. Slow the. <laughs> you can say yeah. hell. You can say hell. Yeah. Okay. No, slow the fuck down. Like on <laughs> on social media, because it's it's when we respond to things really quickly that we're facilitating the spread of inaccurate information. And so, and, and satire is kind of in a weird, fragile place because mm-hmm. satire, satire is incredibly important, I think, as a art form, as a literary form. But on social media, it can lose its context so quickly. And what is satire without context, right? Oh, it's, pretty, yeah. pretty, pretty effing dangerous. It can is. I say effing? No, you can't say effing either. <laughs> <laughs> any other Damn. letter. Any other letter. Fuck. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah, it's kind of it's it's a it's a such a fascinating thing to watch. It it feels like yeah, I mean I guess in a way it just feels like social media is making people fragile. Yes. Um yes. and we're I, already fragile. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I kind of stopped so ironically, I have mostly stopped looking at Facebook and most of my interaction with Facebook is via bots. Oh like, yeah. I just have bots that post things and then I right. really don't worry about going to see what's happening because you just it's like you dip your toe into the Facebook stream and and then all of a sudden you're watching you know your high school friends be racists and all sorts of yeah. weird awkward things and Yeah. No, it's it's re- I mean it's funny I I have a Facebook account still just because as a as a professional in a media industry, like I kind of have to, mm-hmm. but, I, but I, I'm like the worst person on the planet for it because I, I never engage with anybody. Like I literally, I'm just like, hey, the film got into this festival here. Yeah, yeah. It is <laughs> so the same I'm thing. Like, so it's, it's absolutely <laughs> like bad marketing, but 
it's like, but it's self-preservation. Yeah, know? it is. I mean, I, yeah, I do the same thing with, you know, the podcast and stuff like all the episodes get posted there and it definitely drives traffic, but I don't really, I rarely interact with people who are using Facebook to try to interact with me. Yeah. Um, yeah. By the way, follow me on Facebook, uh, facebook.com <laughs> slash Arnamancy. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to do that. Everybody else should do that too. <laughs> so you were talking about like uh, with the familiars. So we'll get back to the occult stuff here. The yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, they, were, they mostly existed in uh, early modern witchcraft in England and in uh, the Basque country. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, like the concept of the familiar is fascinating mm-hmm. because it's totally entered into our common, you know, like the cultural picture of like what a witch is, you know, there's always the witch and her black cat or or whatever her familiar is. Yes. I mean, look at Sabrina, for instance, who's got, Mm -hmm. but familiar spirits, like helper spirits and stuff. That's an old, old tradition that -hmm. kind of stretches across different, um, different religions and different occult backgrounds and stuff. So, how how did they, how did we lose the rest of that cool stuff? Why did it why did familiars just end up being like English black cats? <laughs> right. So, um, you know, it's interesting because I'm still trying to like get my head around that, and I think I think there's a lot of really good research yet to be done on that as a topic. Um, so, all you aspiring occult historians out there, <laughs> please write books so I can read them. Um, but uh, but really. Um, a lot of it comes back to that idea of the terminology, you know, where do we get that idea familiar from? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one of my episodes goes into it a little bit, but it, it's, it's sort of uh, the, the word familiar comes from, I'm going to, I'm going to, I never learned Latin. So everybody who does all their, you know, proper magic in Latin can correct me, but like it's familius, you know, the, mm-hmm. um, the someone who lives in your house. Right. Um, and, um, and that included your servants. Right. And like, and, and for the Romans, that was slaves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, that word, that the word familiar or family sort of carries that that history with it. Um, so when you're thinking about familiar from an early modern context, and this is something I don't I don't have an answer to, but I sort of wonder about um, to what degree is that this sort of Roman idea of that they're potentially servants in your household, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and because that that term for family came later. That was a relatively late invention. I can't remember the year, but it was like, I want to say it was like somewhere between the 1200s and the 1500s. It's relatively recent, maybe not that late, but um, people can send angry letters to me and correct me because I would like to know this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, the, so, so there's that idea of something that's a servant already built into the word familiar, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Something that's of the family. Um, And then there's also that idea that it's just an ordinary thing. Um, so if you look at familiars in the uh, English early modern witch trials, they're mice, they're fleas, they're little frogs, they might be a little dog. Um, the, the black cat was actually a fairly late invention. That's Victorian. Um, I mean, you'll, you'll see, yeah, you'll see, black, you know, cats come up, but like, and like little black dogs and little black cats, but the, but the, the really famous, you know, the fun one that we think about in Halloween today, that's a Victorian thing. Um, and what, but what's interesting to me is like, if you look at the witch trial records, sometimes, um, you know, uh, an accused witch will be talking about their familiar and what they're describing sounds a lot like a ghost. And then they'll actually say, well, no, it's actually the ghost of this guy who lived on the road, my familiar, this ghost. So it's like the same thing. And so that idea of having a spirit assistant or having uh, uh, the dead do service work for the magician, that's something you find like all over the world, right? So is really the English, so I I, I always kind of come back to the idea of like, is the English familiar really truly unique to the English witch trials or um, was this an example of, of sort of spirit work that you see all over the place? Um, but that term and that relationship got codified in the witch trials themselves. So my my hypo- my working hypothesis, which is probably ro- totally wrong, and I really hope um, uh, Owen Davies or <laughs> Daniel Harms or like 
you know, John Callow, one of those folks writes a great book saying Freeman, shut up. She doesn't know what she's talking about. Um, <laughs> well, I just said <laughs> that they're but listening that it, to this episode. <laughs> I know. See, I'm calling them out. Now you can tag them or we'll drag them in. Right. Um, <laughs> but, but basically that, um, uh, that that entity, that idea of the familiar was something crafted in the witch trials. Now, I don't know about the Basque country. Now, obviously, they also had pretty horrendous witch trials. Um, but I but that's where my my knowledge sort of falls apart because I was focusing on on uh, England. So, yeah. Huh. Um, so then do you feel like uh, at the end of Familiar Shapes, do you feel like you kind of came to a really good conclusion i know you were talking about how you feel like the the techno technological side of it is kind of getting a little out of date but do you feel like you got a a good enough start where we can kind of apply some of these like early modern ideas to what's happening now and maybe be a little bit more aware when it starts happening again yes absolutely and um and this was something that came up with my interviews with um uh, samuel woolley who's a journalist at he's at ut austin now um, and one of the things he studied history too, being a good journalist. And one of the things that he discussed quite a bit is that, um, when the movable tripe press sort of really got its foothold, um, information traveled incredibly fast, right? Like we think that it took forever, but it really didn't. Um, and, uh, and people could pretty much publish anything. So, you know, Mary Gibson talks about how as long as it wasn't seditious, <laughs> <laughs> you could publish it, you know, mm -hmm. and especially if it had a nice moral content to it about like, witches are bad. Don't do witchcraft. Um, then, you know, all the more power to you. So it really, it really wasn't until much later that um, secular courts sort of came in and said, this is getting out of control. People are publishing all kinds of crazy stuff and it's, and it's, you know, causing like, people to fight each other and kill each other and do horrible things. So maybe we should have some safeguards on this. And we're having that struggle right now, right? So social media and the internet are covered by the same laws that govern television, radio, I mean, with some minor adjustments, but not really. And the problem is that TV and radio are all media where it's one to many. You have one organization that curates that information and they stream it out to masses of people. It's not reciprocal. Um, with social media, it's a many-to-many -many platform. And that's what makes it really complex, uh, both in terms of information flow, but also in terms of um, regulating it. And yeah. so we're facing a time where we might have to start having a conversation about what does screaming fire in a crowded movie theater look like when you're on the internet? Because that's what's happening. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. It it It's it's decentralized information pretty much. Right. Mm -hmm. Like you still had, you know, like the Catholic church, you know, at least before Luther came along, had a, had a pretty good, you know, they had like their list of banned books and all that kind of stuff. So they, and you know, they didn't do an awesome job regulating the presses. I mean, the, the number of books printed in the 15th century is kind of mind boggling. Like mm -hmm. in, in the first 80 years of us having a printing press, we'd already printed like 20 million books or something like that. Right. Right. It's, uh, <laughs> it's alarming. The numbers are, are shocking. Like how quickly information started flowing. Um, oh yeah. And it did tend to be, uh, controlled either by, uh, or at least, you know, I mean, there were, there were censors, but also you could only publish if you had money. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. Or if it, you can make yeah. money for somebody else. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, but anybody can use social media. Right. You really just exactly. have to be like funny enough or shocking enough to go viral or whatever. Right. Right. Yeah. And, hmm. and the idea of banning something, uh, like how do you ban hate speech on a social media platform? It's so complex. There's, um, I think it's, a. I want to say it was a radio lab episode. They were talking about, um, I think it was Radio Lab. They were talking about Facebook trying to come up with this sort of like judicial body, like within Facebook, mm -hmm. um, that's got representatives from all these different nations all over the world. And basically, um, when there's censorship cases come up, they have to like, you know, navigate that. And the thing is, like, language that's um, like mildly offensive in the United States, but really doesn't, you know, it doesn't warrant being full board censored within our cultural context is 
truly dangerous in other countries. Mm-hmm. So um, we, I think we, especially as Americans, um, tend to think of the rest of the world as a sort of monoculture, but it's not. Um, and But social media functions as a monolithic global technology. So it's like, it's kind of a tinderbox. Yeah, I mean, I think, and one of the things that we're seeing now, especially with uh, all of the, you know, divisive stuff that seems to be happening inside American politics and inside American social media is even the United States itself isn't a monoculture. Right. Absolutely. I'm I'm not sure that any of us were really ready for that revelation. Right. Oh, it's still hard. (laughs) Very certain in 2015, all of us thought that the rest of the world thought like our neighborhood did. It's it still blows my mind that I'm like wow most of the people in this room are probably not practicing occultists what's what what yeah what do they what do they do in their free time I know I mean video games are cool but okay video games are really cool but <laughs> but only the one with wiz- the ones with wizards <laughs> or time travel yeah to be fair <laughs> actually I know I can I can expand never mind I will stop okay all right yeah so let so um. So anyhow, uh, these are all uh, really interesting topics. I think that um, it's important for people to listen to Familiar Shapes simply because uh, if we get folks kind of like having the same sort of baseline understanding or same kind of like uh, realization that these, that, you know, not only are we living in new times, but we have, uh, we have a lot of, we have a, less, a lot of lessons that we can learn from the past. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um so hopefully that will spur a lot more uh, a lot more uh, conversation. Right. And I think also just being open to the fact that there's a lot we don't know about the technologies we're using mm-hmm. every day and that that was a phenomena faced by our ancestors, right? Every time there's a new information technology, there's a huge period of uncertainty, you know, with the radio, with television, with the telephone. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're not, I think sometimes it feels overwhelming. Um, and I, I, I take great comfort in knowing that the dead before us also face these similar issues and also manage to have families and have lives and do things and, die <laughs> oh, <know>? yeah. but <laughs> usually um usually very peacefully oh always peacefully, <laughs> always, totally, always peacefully. totally in their sleep <laughs> <laughs> so um another reason that i've been excited to have you on the podcast is because uh you know while i was listening to familiar shapes i couldn't really tell that you were a practitioner but i kept getting this <laughs> feeling like she's not telling at all there's something else going on <laughs> and it wasn't until after i emailed you where you sort of um you know, told me about your secret witch identity and I got to <laughs> listen to some of their interviews with you and read some of your other stuff. And I realized that like another interest that both of us have in common is sort of how modern technology is influencing the occult or mm. can influence the cult if we stop getting so hung up on making everything out of, you know, leather and brass or whatever. Like we don't... <laughs> You know, uh, so so I guess it's it. I'm I'm interested to hear some of your thoughts on this. Like, you, I think a, a, a phrase you used was a digital occultism in all its glorious forms, and <laughs> it made me think of uh, both some of the stuff I've been playing with and also some stuff that I've seen. Um, one of the things I've been really interested in is how there are like threads of. Uh, mathematics and cryptography that sort of exist especially in early modern occultism but going all the way back to like you know medieval arabic occultism that was all cutting edge and then there was a point probably around like after john d like somewhere in the 1600s where the mathematicians stopped being wizards stopped being witches and uh cryptography and all the mathematics mathematics stuff went off in its own branch of of learning, and they kind of stopped integrating well. Um, and I, I want that to not be the case. I want there to be more math in occultism. I know that yeah. people are probably groaning out there right now, being like, "No, not math." Oh no, I, um, I got 
I got onto this um, Discord community over the pandemic and there's like at least five people I can think of. Shout out at you, Salt, <laughs> um, who like totally agree. And I think, um, do you know that book by uh, Jason Josephson Storm? Um, I'm blanking on the name of it. I've never uh, heard that name before. Jason Josephson Storm. Yeah. Um, um, like next time, next time uh, I'm not trying to talk and text at the same time, I'll try to look up the title of his book, but he's a philosopher and a historian. And he wrote a really, I'm halfway through it, but he wrote this fascinating book looking at the idea. Oh, it's called the myth of disenchantment, the myth of disenchantment. And he's sort of going through that idea that, um, Oh, you know, we had, the industrial revolution and the enlightenment and that's when magic died. And then we're all good, rational people. And, um, and you know, most any historian can tell you, well, that's just not really true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it is a myth that culturally we in industrialized nations really hold on to unless you're a magical practitioner. And then you're like, Oh, it's a, <laughs> it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Um, and, uh, the, the thing that I'm finding, so I'm, I'm really interested in religious studies. That's not my academic training. I sort of wish I could go back and get 10 more degrees. Um, I think there's but, still time. Oh gosh. No, I'm 47. Yo. It's like, it's, I'm tired. <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> um, my, my 13 year old can do it. Um, study this for me, kid, and then tell me everything you learn. <laughs> That um, always works out well. That is good parenting. Totally. Great parenting. He would totally agree. I'm going to tell him to agree. Um, no, but seriously, uh, he, um, oh, I, I totally lost my train of thought trying to be funny. Um, right. Uh, there's this idea in religious studies called uh, bricolage, like, you know, like cutting out mm-hmm. pieces of paper and gluing them together. Um, sometimes it's referred to as remixing, but there is this phenomena, and, and you can see this beautifully in American um, uh, religious history, where um, group, individuals will pick and choose in a lot of ways relative to their context and relative to their position of social power, um, things from different communities in order to enhance their own kind of existence. Um, mm-hmm. And when you're talking about that in terms of religious studies or magical practice, um, you know, you, you see this in, um, uh, you know, powwow magic of the, um, you know, Pennsylvania Dutch and um, that a lot of those are sort of, you know, you have these sort of weird mixes of Protestant prayers and occasionally some weird Catholic things, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about um, uh, the long lost friend, right, you know? Right. So looking at that, as this sort of thing that's still happening today. Um, But I think, you know, one avenue of looking at that is looking at that in terms of scientific innovation and technological development and what people were also doing. So, you know, if you were using a particular, if you were using Willow, right, to treat your, um, uh, uh, what is it, headaches, is that right? This is me not being an herbalist. Yeah, I think so. Willow, yeah, isn't that where Aspen comes from? Yeah, that's yeah, what I'm thinking. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, we'll pretend we're, this is where we're pretending we're herbalists. All okay, right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if, if you're doing that and that's working, right, um, and then you discover the chemical compounds of aspirin and you're like, oh, this is how we can make synthetic aspirin, um, it, it's, you're still using the same technology, right? And you're mm-hmm. using it to the same end. Now, my question to us is like, you know, maybe if we build this relationship with the willow tree in order to harvest it at the right time so that it has the optimal potency, why in God's green earth wouldn't you bother doing that to your bottle of aspirin too? I would. I mean, I don't just because I don't have time, but like there's no reason why you couldn't. So I think um, there is this idea that things that come directly from the natural world are somehow inherently more magical than, you know, this computer I'm sitting in front of or my phone. Um, there are technologies that are heavily manipulated by humankind and our history of technology, right? Sure. Absolutely. Um, but every single thing that is in them came from this planet. So as an animist, I'm like, they're no less potent than that rock over there. They're just very different objects. Um, and you can take that same 
approach and look at your ritual dagger, right? Like mm-hmm. working iron is an incredibly complex and old technology. Anybody who's actually worked iron knows that it's like not a walk in the park. Like it takes years of training and practice and like a lot of, a lot of skill and knowledge from other people. Um, it's just an older technology than my cell phone. Um, and it's a technology that I could probably learn if I gave myself a lot of time Now, trying to fabricate a cell phone from scratch. That's probably not something I'd be able to do, mm-hmm. but I could sure as hell try. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you could carve a piece of soap into something that looked like a cell phone. <laughs> That's right. My phone avatar. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Um, I think a lot of uh, practitioners are honestly taking way more advantage of technology than they might think they are, too. You know, Absolutely. like uh, candles are a great example. Like modern candles aren't made the way old candles were. Um, but also even their ritual daggers are not the same kind of iron that was being used 200, 300, 400 years ago. You know, they're... They're totally different compounds, totally different mm-hmm. manufacturing processes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then practitioners, well, actually, you know, and a lot of practitioners, there, there's other stuff, you know, like uh, think of astrologers nowadays. They mm-hmm. are using software to do all their calculations for them. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, it kind of, uh, it almost commodifies astrology. Like astrology used to be seen as the, you know, the rich person's divination tool, because it took forever to do a chart, you know, you would Mm -hmm. have to do so much math by hand, maybe even some observation, you know, which would have been naked eye observation, right, and measurements of the sky and like all this sort of stuff would have to happen that, uh, you know, astrologers today never, ever, ever, ever have to worry about. Um, Right. And, and that's the thing. I think, I think, um, we want to separate our magical practice practice from our practical world in order to kind of as a trigger, right? Like as a magical trigger in part, I mean, there's other reasons, but like, but that's one. And the thing is like, if you look at like the history of a lot of magical practices, they were commodities, right? Like you got paid to do that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, not for other occultists, but for practical people who were like, do I sail my ships today? Like, is this a good idea to like launch into this battle? I don't know. You tell me, <laughs> like be my advisor and like use the tools at your disposal. Um, and it, you know, I, I think, um, I, I, I feel like it doesn't have to be an either or, right? It can be mm-hmm. both. It can be a practical thing. Like when I, you know, when I'm working with salt as a chemical object, like it can be a chemical object and it can also have all those magical properties and associations. Um, and I mean, honestly, like most of the magical practitioners I know, um, and maybe this is just the people that I like hang out with, but um they do have very flexible views about technology. Um, I, th- I think, um, I think maybe on social media, we tend to spread these ideas that we're, we're into the old stuff and technology doesn't come into the discourse, but maybe it's just the technology discourses aren't the ones that are getting upvoted all the time. Um, you know, <laughs> coming up with like a ritual to consecrate my phone so that I could do zoom ritual and not have things crash out on me, which I Mm -hmm. did. And it was very effective. I might add, um, like not the sexiest thing to put on Instagram. (laughs) It's like, Hey, look at my crappy Android. Uh, on a, on a more practical level, let's talk about zoom ritual a little bit. So you, um, you were running an online, uh, (laughs) coven. Yeah. Yeah. An outer court. Pretty Pretty recently. Uh, okay, I, right, I'm a little, I'm a little Wicca ignorant. So oh, that's fine. So, I am too. This is perfect. I'm 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 an initiative Wicker. Wicker. <laughs> <laughs> um, so can you tell us what is an outer court? Oh right. So um, this is a this doesn't exist everywhere, right? This isn't like mm-hmm. a universal like all Wiccans do this kind of thing because I don't think uh, more and more I don't think that exists, but. Um, uh, in, particularly in the United States, um, there's when somebody is interested in being initiated into uh, Gardnerian Wicca, um, they'll approach uh, a coven, and often that coven will have what's called an outer court, which is a space for um, 
the coven to kind of get to know that person and that person to get to know the coven and to slowly kind of build an egregore. Um, and it's also often a training space. So different covens will approach that in really, really different ways. Um, some covens will take people who like, you know, read a book and feel like they're drowning in information and don't know where to get started. And, but they're pretty sure they want a coven work to be the place. Um, others will, you know, want people to have practiced something for, you know, at least a couple of years, you know, so it's, it really varies from place to place. Um, but the idea is that it, it's, it's time built in so that um, that person can be trained in sort of the, the basic concepts and how a ritual works, even though they're not, it's, it's not the oathbound ritual. Um, and then it also gives them all time to get to know each other. Um, there's a lot of trust that's like really critical to coven based work, um, on, on magical levels and, and really practical levels. You know, if you have people coming to your home, you want to make sure that your family is going to save and they want to make sure they're going to be safe. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, cause I don't know why <laughs> sometimes occultists are weird. <laughs> we're just weird. <laughs> Mostly we're just goofy weird, but, um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a time and a space to kind of, um, help everyone get to know each other and to help that seeker uh, who's, who's wanting to be initiated really kind of decide for themselves this, if this is in fact something that they want. Um, sometimes they, they think they really do want a coven, but, but really they just, they want other, um, they want a community of magical practitioners in their life, mm. or maybe they do want group pra- practice, but they realize like they want something that's less influenced by ceremonial magic. So um, it really, it's, it's a time for learning um, and it, it serves both, both parties. Um, and, you know, traditionally they say, Oh, you do the outer court for a year and a day and then you're initiated. Um, but I don't know that I've ever met anybody where that's been the case. I mean, it really, it really varies, but, but mm-hmm. most take at least a year because it, it takes a while to get to know each other. So then you were, since you were doing this online, you actually found like effective ways to do zoom ritual. Yeah, what, do actually. You, do you have some uh, hints that you could share with the rest of us? Like, how do you, <laughs> how do you make it so? I mean, how do you get a Zoom ritual going so that you can, like, you know, see what other people are doing? Have an altar that is sort of present for everybody, or at least everybody having a similar altar. Like, how do you do all that stuff? Oh man, yeah, and especially when everybody's brand new to it. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and they had different degrees of experience with different occult practices. So, um, yeah, it was okay. So there was a lot of, thank goodness I'm an artist. Cause like, there was a lot of drawings. This is what your altar should look like. <laughs> and then emailing them that, um, mm-hmm. and basically the, the early rituals are really building up to it. So in the beginning I said, you know, have two candles, like on a little table in front of you, make sure you have a door you can lock that's it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, you know, tell your roommates not to bother <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, and then we gradually each ritual kind of added elements where they were participating more and more. So, um, over time, um, the difference with the zoom ritual from an in-person ritual is in an in-person ritual. Typically the high priest and the high priestess are doing a lot of the work, right? Like they're mm-hmm. doing a lot of the ritual work. And the good pagan folk is they were sort of stand around and kind of face the different directions as you're casting a circle, but um, they're not super active, right? Um, with an online ritual, because computers are horrible for social interaction sometimes, um, they had to be more active. So when we were doing the quarters, like they would stand up and they'd like be doing their invoking pentagrams or whatever. And um you know, and I would teach them how to do it. And then you're like, wait, is it, you know, like I'm on, on the zoom call, I'm like gesturing in front of you and you never know which is left and right and up right. and down. So <laughs> there are a lot more diagrams, a lot more diagrams. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was a really gradual process building up to not only was I performing the ritual, but they were doing pretty much everything with me in their own local space. Um, so I had, uh, I started off with like a phone and a laptop. So I had my um, laptop like on a little pedestal behind my altar. So it was a little crowded. And then I had a phone like 
on like Jimmy rigged on like some ladders and stuff up in a corner so that I could, <laughs> so they could see kind of the whole space and see kind of what I was doing in the space. Uh-huh. Um, and then we, you know, over time we realized they just didn't need that. So it just was the laptop after that. Um, but they all had like a phone or a laptop, mm-hmm. um, basically between their candles on their altar. So I could see what they were doing. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. And so, I mean, from the training standpoint, it got a little, it was a little tricky because sometimes um, we'd be doing something and somebody would see somebody else on their Zoom call doing something and they would be like, oh, wait, what, like, how do I salute? Like, what does that look like? And it's like, and so we'd have a big discussion because it was one of those things where my expert blind spot meant that <laughs> they didn't know what I was doing. Right, um, right. So, I mean, it was, it was very collaborative in that way. Um, I was trying to figure out how do you do a Zoom ritual and they were instrumental in helping me figure out how, how you convey that. But, but by the time, um, uh, you know, we got down to about three people, those, those three people really knew it really well. And, um, uh, by the end, uh, when I had one person left, they actually came to Charlotte and circled with me and we had too much fun. It was great. Um, but, uh, I had them, you know, run one of the roles and they did it perfectly. I was like, (laughs) so it is possible. I mean, from the standpoint of training, um, and it, you know, it took about a year. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. My, uh, I have a hermetic lodge that I practice with out here and, uh, we had just pretty much gotten started. We were like a year old when the pandemic stuff hit and, um, and our one year anniversary was like, you know, a month after the lockdowns started. So we were just sort of like, oh, what do we do? Yeah. And it was, uh, it was kind of weird. Like we, when we were able to, we, we met together outside, but, uh, then the rest of the time we thought about doing zoom rituals and none of us really felt into it. So instead we just kind of coordinated and did rituals at the same time. Yeah. But I'm not yeah. sure it wasn't as, you know, it just felt like there needed to be something more to build camaraderie. I'm not sure. I do think yeah. it's something that we have to figure out as occultists. Yeah. So. Well, and that's, I think that's a really good point. You know, that, um, that interpersonal space, you know, there's so much you can learn about a person through, you know, online technology, but, um, you know, when I finally got to meet this, this seeker in person, a lot of, a lot of things came up that were good things and they were useful for both of us to know about mm-hmm. each other and ourselves. But it was like, you know, that's, that's when the hawk fire ended was, you know, right. they realized they, they really need something a little bit different. And, and, but that's, that's the role. That's the purpose of an outer court, right? Like if, if people are sticking it out and miserable, it's not doing its work. But if people realize, ah, this is the path I need to be on now, I've done my work, you know, the outer court did what it's supposed to do. Um, so, but yeah, the, I think that the reason why it worked as long as it did and as well as it did from a technology standpoint is because nobody had done group ritual in person before. So, oh, I, so they didn't have, they weren't going to mm-hmm. have that disappointed feeling that like, Oh man, yes. this could have been better. <laughs> this is going to suck. Yeah. And it was funny because um, my last seeker and I, we did a, uh, one last zoom ritual in between sort of two different visits. And I was like bracing for like, is this going to, is this going to really extra suck now that, you know, now that they know the good stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, um, uh, and it was actually, it was fine. It was actually much easier than usual because we, you know, we knew that, um, or, or they knew that what they were doing in their space was, was working. It was correct. And, you know, um, it wasn't as much fun, you know, right. um, but, uh, but, it, but it was functional. Yeah. And sometimes you just got to keep, keep it alive. Yeah. You know I mean, yeah. And yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, if everybody's local, just meeting outside, honestly, is pretty, pretty ideal. Although I live in Oregon. So. Oh, never mind. <laughs> so you got, you got like three months of meeting outside, right? Well, uh, I mean, Climate change has really sort of dried us out real well. <laughs> uh, so we're like nine months of meeting outside right now. But, uh, oh, okay. you know, the, right. the, the rainy season is starting soon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, man. I hope. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, so that, so then, uh, so that online um, outer court, that experiment is kind of over. But on your mm-hmm. blog, you were talking about how, 
you think that some sort of like hybrid online in-person experience is going to be really important for um, covens to uh, enable in the future. Oh, yeah. Do you and th- I, well, I was oh, wondering, well, I was wondering, what about initiations? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. So, um, so, so two parts of that. One is, um, you know, covens have been doing online training for a long time. It just, mm-hmm. you know, people just don't talk about it. Right. Um, you know, and if you look at the history of, um, of Wicca from Gardner on like correspondence courses have been a big part of things, right? Like this isn't new. Um, shoot, this is like, this is everywhere in the history of all magical practices as far as I can tell. Hey, let me mail you something. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to initiations, I think like, I, I think there could be, okay. And this, this is something where um, I think some people might really disagree with me, but I think it, this is, this is also why, um, you know, every magical practice is a living practice run by human beings and we are incredibly flawed and fragile and messed up and we make weird choices and it's glorious. Right. Um, I can totally imagine somebody someday forming some branch of Wicca um, where they do like they're fully digital. They do like Oculus quests, like initiations or something awesome like that. Um, That person will not be me. You know, I, and, and for, for just practical reasons, I really, I, I love in-person practice and I am going to start another coven again, but it's, it's going to be in person and old fashioned and local and like, you know, it's I like I I tried to do the big noble thing and it didn't quite work. Right. <laughs> but but I I do think that there's a possibility there for people who are creative who um, are feel called to do that, inspired to do that, um, and who can do it from a place where they're being very self honest about why they're doing it. Um, so like if you have somebody in your outer court who's a quadriplegic, right? Mm -hmm. And they live in Ukraine and you're in New York and everybody's pretty convinced this person was meant to be an initiate. It would be a shame if you didn't figure out a creative way to do it. That's, that's all. That's a really interesting way to look at it. Yeah. We were talking a little bit about, um, digital spaces too, like online Mm -hmm. spaces. Um, You know, uh, I've seen Masonic lodges that had been built in like Second Life, for instance, where they did the whole lodge layout. (laughs) I don't think that they were ever used. You know, there's, you know, Freemasonry is very slow to adopt new technologies. So um, I'm not really sure that's sort of like the paradigm of Masonic Lodge and sort of like the sacred seal of the room sort of thing during the opening uh, would translate very well to digital spaces or online spaces, but Mm -hmm. it would be an interesting thing to try to figure out. Oh yeah. I mean, something like the OTO for sure, but I don't Mm -hmm. know about Masonic Lodges. Like I, you know, I mean, in, in Gardnerian Wicca, there's this, this idea that covens are autonomous. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a check and balance to that. You want to make sure that that initiates aren't being like weird and creepy and abusive. Right. So we do check up on each other, but to another degree, like, um, you know, I'm sure there's covens all over the place trying weird experiments with magic, you know, and, and um, you know, if it, if it works awesome and they, it becomes part of their canon maybe, or maybe not. And if it doesn't, then they just like, well, that's it work. You know, <laughs> you just keep, keep trucking on. Um, but yeah, I, I do think a lot though about um, VR spaces and AR spaces. Um, I feel like mixed reality has some possibilities there too. Um, to me, the question right now is accessibility. So like, you know, um, like there's, there's things you can do with an Oculus, um, that are just physically more comfortable than if you're using Google glasses. Right. Mm-hmm. So I could totally see somebody and I'm, there are artists who've done this, who've built like virtual, um, temple spaces. Um, uh, so you can totally build virtual temple spaces. I think it's, it's getting, getting other people in a multiplayer kind of mode. If you want to think about it that way, mm-hmm. that's, that's where it gets a little tricky. And, um, I don't know, have you ever played, uh, uh, Arizona sunshine on the Oculus by any chance? 
No, I've only used a pair of VR goggles once and it was like four years ago. So I, okay. Yeah. Highly, highly recommend the Oculus. It's been really interesting. Um, but I was playing this multiplayer, uh, online game called Arizona sunshine. where you go out and shoot zombies in Arizona. And one of the things that was fascinating about it is like when you're navigating and moving through space, it's, it's fine. It's fairly comfortable. Um, but when you're watching other players move because of the way the navigation system works, you see them kind of like lurching along the ground. <laughs> and I was like, I was thinking about it in relation to like, how would I build a, like a virtual ritual space where we could actually do like, you know, proper ritual workings. And I'm like, you know, that, lur- that lurching, that would just take me right out of magical headspace so fast. <laughs> so I, I feel like um, the, the challenges are still technological more mm-hmm. than, than magical. <laughs> Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how uh, future occultists kind of deal with that. I'm not yeah. sure that uh, I'm not sure that um, the occult and technology have overlapped like super in a super healthy manner so far. Like, mm-hmm. I think a lot of it tends to be really focused on kind of like uh, a little bit too much of like a materialist worldview or a material materialist approach to things. Um, and I think about that too, like the the interaction between digital technology and the imagination, you know, mm. where sometimes it kind of takes away from the amount of work that we have to do with visualization. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily super awesome for for doing magic, but um, but also it can be used to train, right? So you you can yeah. you can strengthen your imagination through using um, these tools. And, oh yeah, and also, I mean, you're doing you're doing digital artwork. Mm-hmm. So you're learning how to, in, in fact, I guess in some ways it's almost easier for us to, um, to share products of our imagination with other people. Oh yeah. 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 But it's like, you know, if you're working magically with others, if you're, if you're doing your own magical workings, that's one thing, but if you are working with others, um, it can't be a one way street. And, and that's, that's both the promise and the challenge with technology. So um, if I, you know, one of the things I'm developing right now is um, uh, a temple to Hecate um, in unity, which will be ported out to um, the Oculus. And the thing that I keep coming back to is that the, because of my limitations as a programmer, I mean, I can program my way out of a box, but it won't be elegant. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's my, where I'm at right now, but. Have you um, thought of uh, finding other programmers to work with? Yes. Oh yeah. Actually it was funny uh, before, no, I guess it was when I was, I just started working on the film. I had a great, uh, uh, it was like a Facebook conversation. It was like weird, not zoom, but it was before mm-hmm. the pandemic um, with some, some folks who were um, chaos magicians and um programmers in in like basically in Silicon Valley in like the nineties. And they shared with me a BBS text-based ritual that they did. And I was like, man, that's so boss. Um, It was so cool. But the hilarious parts, they, (laughs) you know, it was this whole ritual. They, they clearly had scripted parts that they were supposed to type into the BBS at certain times. So they, you know, the the thing went through And at the end of the ritual, like one of them, I'm just thinking about all the drugs in LA at that time. One of the, (laughs) one of the, one of the people on the ritual was like, cool. So what do we just do? <laughs> it's like, yes, that's awesome. That is the magic of digital technology. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, um, I just, I just got to find some programmers who are like into weird woo stuff. And I, I'm sure there's actually quite a lot. I would like to find more of them. I've, I've started to connect with more and more of them. And um, the cool thing is like a lot of them just get so excited that anybody else is thinking about this stuff. And there's, oh, yeah. you know, there's a lot of people out there working on some cool things. So maybe, oh, yeah. maybe what we need to make is uh, some sort of online um, dark coffee shop. <laughs> That's not on Reddit. <laughs> That's not on Reddit. <laughs> I, I love that. Hang out at. <laughs> it would be the, it would have to be some play off of the Darknet Diaries. Like, yeah. 
I still haven't listened Dark. to the Darknet Diaries. Oh, I've, so good. I've, so I've heard good. a lot about it. I, I downloaded some episodes. I, I will listen to some soon. Uh, as soon as I'm done with my second listen through of familiar shows, of course. <laughs> oh, don't, oh, don't do that to yourself. <laughs> I, 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 should, I should plug. Um, this won't be coming out until like late 2020, 23. There's too many 20s in there. It's just mm-hmm. 2023, not 2023. Okay, cool. Because, um, uh, yeah, none of us will live that long. Um, but uh, it will be a, um, uh, a uh, another podcast series. It'll be shorter. It'll be 12 episodes. Um, and I'm starting it knowing it's going to be a podcast rather than doing a film. <laughs> um, looking at the history of magical practices in the United States. So Oh, yeah. So uh, this is for lay audiences, right? Mm-hmm. So it's for people who don't have a background in religious studies, who don't have a background in magic. Like this is for your general, this is like the one you can send to your grandma and like just kind of wink at her and maybe she'll figure things out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she, <laughs> even if she's dead, then you can hold the speaker up to the grave. It'll be good. Um, but uh, it's, we're, we're sort of picking out, I say we, cause I'm working with some religious studies scholars on this and um, we're picking out some events and periods in American history. So um, one episode is looking at Baharai, you know, which is powwow. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, uh, and then another is looking at uh, Santeria, uh, so Lakumi. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, in each episode, we're looking at how that particular magical practice interface with the rest of the the dominant society around it and sort of the tensions that came up out of that. So if you look at the history of magical practices in the United States, it's very often you'll have one group practicing something. They typically don't call it magic and the dominant community around them is like, what's this magic you're doing? And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, either hilarity or terror ensues, usually terror. So in the case of uh, Lokumi in Santeria, you know, there's been a series of uh, civil rights course cases about their use of um, animal sacrifice. And, you know, the, the challenge there is that um, the courts have consistently said, yes, they're allowed to do this. These laws that you're this township set up are, are deliberately targeting them and persecuting them, which violates their civil liberties. Um, but there's yet to be an overarching, like, you know, legal language to protect them uh, into the future. So this is constantly happening to them. Um, and uh, then looking at the history of conjure and, uh, and being in North Carolina, this is near and dear to my heart and kind of um, what happened uh, to conjure during the great migration when it got commercialized by, uh, you know, white marketeers basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the the history of magical practice in the U.S. Oh, and we have one on uh, the Satanic Panic, of course. Um, I'm going to have to do like a shout out to Little Nas X in there because that's going to be amazing. Um, so, and then of course an episode on Wicca. Um, but like the thing, the thing about this is like it's it's been so hard because there's so much, mm-hmm. there's so much, and we're like trying to narrow this down into twelve episodes. But it really oh, is there's looking. Also, at- there's new thought. Oh yeah, no, we've got a we've got an episode on new thought, spiritualism, spiritualism. the yep. Ouija board. Yep. Oh, oh yeah. There's, there's, yeah. Uh, oh. You're gonna do this all in twelve episodes, huh? We're gonna do this in twelve episodes. Oh, I, we've got one. That's, that's ambitious. The the one that has my colleagues kind of freaking out because they're like, "This is a Pandora's box," and I'm like, "This is why we have to do it." <laughs> is one on perceptions of Native American spirituality as if that exists as a singular thing because it's Ugh. fucking not. And that's I'm it. like, yeah, because I'm like. People are so freaking ignorant, like myself included, right? I got to put me there um, mm-hmm. that it's like <laughs> we can stick to just like the bare, most bare bones facts and people will learn more than they knew from the get go. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, just by starting off saying there is no such thing as a singular Native American spirituality. And if you oh, call yeah. it magic, you you deserve the chewing out that you're going to get. Right? Yeah. And also so, like speaking of things that are not a monoculture. That are not a monoculture, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, when I'm talking in this podcast, when we're talking about the history of magic in the United States, some of it is going to be about people who own that what they're doing, they perceive it as a magical practice. They talk about it in that language. They're comfortable with that. And in a lot of cases, it's not. It's a religion, but other people are calling it magic as a a, a pejorative, Mm -hmm. right? right? And so- 
it's anyway, it's looking at that history of how we use language and talk about magic and talk about religion. Do you know? I'm super stoked. Do you know what the title is going to be? Yeah. Magic in the United States. Super boring title. (laughs) I'm not even writing that down. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be awesome. And 2023. Well, okay. So how can people uh, keep up to date on your projects? Oh, that's a great question because I, I, we were just talking about how I suck at social media. Um, my uh, One of my coven mates is like, you need to start a TikTok. I'm like, damn it. Can I, can I like hire? Oh man, hire- people have told me to do that too. I'm not going to do oh, it. No, I'm not going to start know. a TikTok. I'm like, nobody wants to look at my old ass on TikTok. Like, Yeah, I mean, also like, it's just more time. Yeah, at least you got a cool mustache. I don't even have a cool mustache. You can always just draw one on. <laughs> I'm gonna do that. That's gonna be my TikTok. Yeah, this, Actually, I'll just I'll put it on the camera so yeah, it's perpetually there. Like a filter. I think TikTok has all these filters. There's a there's got to be a mustache filter. There'll be a mustache filter. Um, yeah, I guess I have to start a TikTok. Um, I I am on social media. I I won't lie. I'm horrible at it, so I don't I don't do much or say much. Um, I'm uh, uh, Heather Heather D Freeman on Instagram, which is honestly my family and my cats. So it's like not really interesting, but, um, and then, uh, Freeman makes art on Twitter, which I use even less. <laughs> um, but you can see my like comments on Owen Davies posts. So there you go. Um, and then, uh, but for, for familiar shapes, it, there's the website for familiar shapes is familiar shapes, the movie.com. Um, and was familiar uh, shapes, the podcast already taken. Uh, no, because it started off as a movie and I just didn't want to buy another new domain. So, cause I'm cheap. Um, and then on Instagram, it's, it's familiar shapes. I think it's just familiar shapes on Instagram. Um, and, uh, I also have my own portfolio website, which is heatherdfreeman.com because there's too many Heather Freemans who were born in the 1970s. Um, uh, and basically anyone in all of those sites, once magic in the United States, uh, starts getting underway, I'll start promoting it when I build it, its own website. Okay, great. Well, I will make sure to have links to, um, all of that stuff, uh, especially your cat pictures. Oh yeah. My one cat, she's an asshole. She's like, oh, can I say asshole? She's an asshole. Uh, You can say asshole. Yeah. You just can't, you just can't say butthole on this podcast. Yeah. No, she's, she's a full board (laughs) asshole. (laughs) I love her. She's an asshole. Um, this has been amazing. I feel like there's a lot, uh, more to talk about. You, you had so many ideas and we only got through like, Um, (laughs) I didn't even tell you about my, my pregnant avatar in second life. (laughs) That's right. Okay. 14 years ago, I was pregnant on it. The second life. It was amazing. Huh? I had to work really hard at that. I think Second Life still <laughs> exists, doesn't it? It does. And it's still a Pornhub. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, as your as your uh, projects evolve or as you have new ideas, please, like, get in touch with me. I'd be happy to talk to you about this stuff again. Uh, this was so fun. I would yeah. love to talk with you about this stuff again. Well, and also, you know, I am sort of finding more and more uh, technologists, like programmers and and stuff who are into the occult. And so, and they're all like our age, you know? Yeah. So they've been doing it forever and right. they just haven't had anybody to talk to. So right. one of the things that I'm really kind of trying to focus on is a little bit more exploration of uh, the technology and magic stuff so yeah that that yeah. really could almost be its own probably should be its own podcast i feel like i might have stumbled on one once but it, it needs there needs to be more of that yeah yeah i don't want to start another podcast at the moment. <laughs> i've got too many ideas for that already so <laughs> um but thank you for coming on it was a pleasure to have you yeah it was so fun and thank you again for having me This has been another episode of the Arnamancy Podcast. Thank you for joining me. I have been your host, Reverend Eric. You can find Arnamancy online at arnamancy.com, and you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere podcasts are found. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting the Arnamancy Project for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash arnamancy. <laughs> <laughs>